does, it'll work for two seconds and then it'll go dark. So don't put too much hope in it. We're carrying on in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been looking at these parables in Matthew 13, parables that Jesus gives us of the kingdom. And one of the things Jesus is going to teach us today is that the kingdom is irrepressible. The kingdom has come, but how can two different groups of people hear what Jesus says and does, see his mighty acts, but then respond differently? Some are embracing him, some are rejecting him, some are indifferent, some just don't know what to make of him. If the kingdom of heaven has come, why is there all this evil in the world? If the kingdom has come, why does it seem so insignificant? Why is it barely noticeable? Why is it so small? These are the types of questions that people who are hearing Jesus' message, and I bet you some of us in the room as well, are asking, trying to make sense of when it comes to Jesus. And Jesus would be like, these are great questions. My kingdom doesn't come like other human kingdoms. I won't do it like that. So let me reorient your understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because if you do, you can begin to build your life on me, on my words, and on my kingdom. And that is what Jesus is doing through these seven parables in Matthew 13. They reveal how the kingdom of heaven works. And so today we're going to look at the third and fourth parables that Jesus gives us. They're called twin parables because of how similar they are. And you can find them in Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. So I'm going to give you some time to actually find that, either on your phone or in the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through to 33. This is what it says. He, being Jesus, put another parable before them, the crowds that were listening, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Our Father in heaven, you sent us your son Jesus to do your will, to reveal what you are like, to bring your kingdom. And so this morning, we ask for a fresh wind of your spirit to receive what you have for us. And we ask that as we hear Jesus' words, you would pour out your spirit and let the kingdom life spring forth among us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our city. We pray for your glory and our joy. Amen. This morning, I want to ask three questions about these two parables. What are these twin parables about? Why do we need to know this? And what is Jesus' invitation to us? What are these two twin parables about? Why do we need to know this? And what is Jesus' invitation to us? So this first one. What, is, what are these twin parables about? Well, the last couple weeks, we've looked at parables. The parables of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Both of them highlight the sower's desires and purposes in planting followed by an obstacle to his desire, something that seeks to thwart his intentions. And they answer the questions 
If the kingdom has come, why are some people rejecting it? If the kingdom has really come, why is there still evil? This parable that we're looking at today, though, these two of them, they're not like that. They're not highlighting an obstacle, something that you, that you see that's thwarting what's going to happen. Jesus has something different in mind through them. These parables are about the latent but hidden power of his kingdom. And Jesus is giving us his perspective on the, his mission and how it's going to unfold these complementary parables, Matthew pairs them together, and they share this complementary truth, and you see these complementary genders. A man planting this mustard seed that becomes a tree, this woman uh, in her home, and she is putting leaven into flour, and it's, this bread is growing. That is what Jesus says his kingdom is like. That's what my kingdom can be compared to. The commonality between these two parables is the smallness of the seed, a little bit of yeast or leaven, but then the largeness that we see in the end. But the point is not actually on the size. It's to recognize this hidden power that is present and what happens when it is inserted somewhere. The seed, this mustard seed, is incredibly small. Tiny little seeds. In fact, to get just a gram in weight, you would need about 750 mustard seeds. They're so small, but here's the thing. The seed grows into this tree whose branches become strong enough for birds to rest in and find shelter. This extremely little seed has the capacity to grow. This itty-bitty seed has the power to grow. This tiny seed is teeming with life. One of the things we need to understand about the kingdom... This is not typically like the way you and I think about kingdoms when we talk about them. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is not a realm, not in the sense that we think of, say, Buckingham Palace. It's not referring to a specific territory or identifiable group. Instead, the kingdom of God, when the authors of the Bible were talking about it, were referring to God acting as king. The kingdom of God is a system of leadership, is how one person put it, where God is the sovereign leader. And wherever you see someone living with Jesus as king, the kingdom is there. Wherever you witness people building their lives based on the words of the king, the kingdom of God rules there. Wherever you observe a community living in the ways of the king, the kingdom of heaven is there. And Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the king, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is bringing the kingdom. And his kingdom comes like a mustard seed planted in a garden which grows into a tree for others. And there's this biblical precedent that we could see, precedent we could see, where trees symbolize human kingdoms. And birds represent people coming to take shelter in that kingdom. Let me give you two examples of this. Because there's no slide, you can either try to find these passages or just listen. The first is in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. In that chapter, we see King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he has, sees this tree. And we're told in Daniel 4 verse 11, the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. 
He doesn't understand what this dream is about. Daniel comes and interprets this dream and explains to him that the tree is, is, is King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and him and his kingdom. And the kingdom had many inhabitants as they had conquered many areas. And the birds were the inhabitants of this kingdom. And there's a similar picture that we can find in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. This time, God is speaking to his people. And this is what he says to them. Starting in verse 22, he says, I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. God would establish a kingdom where people from every nation and every ethnic group would nest and find shelter. And what makes Jesus unique, though, is in the way that he talks about his kingdom, the way he's establishing his kingdom. It's that it's this really small beginning. It starts tiny, like this mustard seed. The mustard seed goes into the ground as the smallest of seeds, and it grows out of the ground one of the largest plants. Jesus' kingdom starts like this tiny seed, but will grow into the largest of all kingdoms. In fact, these, these mustard seeds, when you plant them and, the, and they would grow, they could grow to be an 8 to 12 foot tall tree. And one author notes that, uh, quote, they'd be large enough for a man to climb as one would climb a fig tree. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who plants the tiniest seed, but it grows and grows into this large tree. And it begins as something really tiny and seemingly insignificant, but it carries with it this big life. It's teeming with this life-giving power. So that eventually what starts off as tiny and barely noticeable grows to provide shade and rest and shelter for many. It's this beautiful image that Jesus gives us of what his kingdom is like. But we're given the second parable. The kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, Jesus says, is like a woman who mixes in a small amount of yeast into a large batch of flour until it completely permeates the flour. When the yeast or leaven is put into the flour, something happens. Now, I have a friend He's in Europe taking a little vacation right now, and he stopped in Paris. And I told him, you better be eating, like, the best croissants. You have to. Paris is known for their food, especially their wine, their coffee, and their croissants. But in the first century, you didn't have bakeries. And my friend, he was telling me, man, everywhere I'm turning right now, there are bakeries everywhere. All this bread being baked out everywhere. In the first century, those bakeries didn't exist didn't even have those nice bread makers that I grew up in in my home where my mom would be making these great, great breads through this machine. They didn't have that. People would bake bread at home. And bread was this staple. It was part of everybody's diet. Nobody was trying to avoid all the carbs. They wanted it back then. So women, when they would bake bread in their homes, they would put a bit of yeast into a mixture of wheat or barley, and it would cause this mixture to expand and grow. And this little bit of yeast would have this huge impact on the dough. In Jesus' parable, the amount of bread that is produced is significant. It's ridiculously large. It's 39 liters of bread. 
It would be enough to feed 40 people three meals a day for several days. Alone, this dough just sits there, motionless. But when you introduce the yeast into it and you mix it in and it comes to permeate every part of the dough, it begins to swell. It begins to bubble up. It begins to grow and provide this nourishment for many people. This little bit of yeast causes this whole bread to expand and grow. This little bit of yeast, this small bit of yeast, when it's inserted into flour, generates a transformation. This minute bit of yeast, when you introduce it into the flour, catalyzes growth that is massive. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says. It is like a mustard seed planted growing into a tree. It is like yeast introduced into flour becoming bread. The focus is not on the quantity or the size, but on the qualitative power to bring good fruit, good life into this world. That is what my kingdom is like. This is what Jesus' perspective on his mission is as he's going about proclaiming the kingdom and then showing people what it is like and inviting people into the kingdom. These parables are about the small and hidden power of the kingdom of God that, it is at, that is at work in our world. The kingdom begins in small and hidden ways, but it will grow, expanding and permeating every nook and cranny of the world. Now, why do we need to know this? Well, I suspect that just as Jesus knew his first audience needed to be reminded of certain truths, we do as well. See, God loves to use small things and to work in unseen places. How does God begin his rescue plan for creation? After humanity rebels against him, he chooses an elderly, childless couple, Abram and Sarah, calls them out of their city in modern-day Iraq and tells them to go to a land they've never visited and to trust him that he will give them this land. And he promises them that they one day will have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, and that through them the world will be blessed. This little couple, an elderly couple, childless, but through them the nations will be blessed. Who does God use to save Abraham's descendants later when there's a famine in the land that they had come to? One of the youngest and smallest of the brothers in this family, Joseph, who's sold into slavery. He's working as a servant to Potiphar and falsely accused, and he gets put in prison, hidden in in this unseen place for, for a time. But then God uses him to actually take care of and rescue his family. Who does God choose to use for his rescue plan among the nations? Was it the strong nation, a wealthy nation, the largest nation? No, God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the strongest or the largest. You're not. You're the smallest of all the nations. I chose you out of love because of who I am. Who does God choose to be king of Israel after Saul fails? David. The oldest of his siblings? No, the youngest, the smallest of Jesse's eight kids, eight sons. Who does God use to defeat the great giant opposed to the purposes of God? David, this small teenage shepherd boy at the time. God loves to use small and hidden places to bring about his purposes. Those, as far as God is concerned, are the great places that manifest his power. 
In those small, weak places, God's power is made perfect. Your smallness, weakness, hiddenness is no offense to God. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, maybe you read and you're like, okay, how does that square with what I read about what Jesus is doing? Because it doesn't really seem small. It doesn't really seem insignificant. It seems the opposite. And I think if you read it, I'd say, yeah, there, there are these moments, but think of his story. Yes, there is an amazing virgin birth. God's long-awaited promises are fulfilled. But Jesus is not born in Jerusalem or Rome. He's not born in the, the political center or the religious center. Where is he born? He's born in Bethlehem. What's in Bethlehem? He's king not of, born in a palace but in a manger. Few people even hear about it. Three magi from the east, they're not even Jewish believers or anything like that, they come to worship. Some shepherds in the middle of the night are told about this. They are not people of influence. These are not people of power and influence who are brought, or it's not even the whole society. It's the people on the margins. It's not the people you expect. Jesus' family are forced to flee to Egypt because he is in danger. And for 30 years, no one really knows too much about Jesus' life. The grand majority of those years were not told. Jesus' ministry begins with him announcing that the kingdom of heaven has come, that it is invading the earth. And we hear these astonishing and soul-resonating sermons. We connect with them. Yes, we read of these remarkable miracles of people's bodies restored. The blind receive sight. The deaf are able to hear again. The paralyzed can walk. Sick are healed of their illnesses. Darkness is being pushed out. Evil is defeated by good. These aren't small feats at all. You're right. And yet, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you start to see, man, there's not, like, there's people who are rejecting Jesus. There's people who think Jesus is a false teacher. There's people who are indifferent. They're like, well, that's kind of amazing, but I don't know what to make of it. Israel didn't recognize the Messiah. It should have been noticed, but they didn't recognize him. Jesus didn't do what the Messiah was expected to do. And so Jesus is speaking to these crowds in, a, in one way that reveals the kingdom, but still conceals it. And he's making sense of what the kingdom's like. Because they're like, look, how could it really be the kingdom of God? We're still oppressed by the Romans. We still live under this captivity. There's a, there's a colonizer that controls the way we live. We see the Roman camps, the garrisons, the checkpoints. We see the tax collectors. We're not free. How can the kingdom of God be here? This is not what we expect. When the Messiah comes, he's going to take out the Romans, and he hasn't. Jesus isn't doing that. He's not even talking about removing the Romans. So Jesus has to teach the people, look, the kingdom has come. Indeed, it's come, but it starts small. And there's this, there's this thing he's trying to teach them and show them, and it's not going to come the way you fully expect. This is why John the baptizer, if you read in Matthew 12, he's totally confused with Jesus because he said Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who brings the kingdom on earth. People should go to Jesus. I've got to become less. He's got to become greater. And then he ends up in prison, and he's just stuck there. And he thought that if he was in line with the king, things would go well, and he's stuck. Wondering, he sends a message to Jesus in Matthew 12 saying, hey, are you the Messiah, or should we look for another one? Because he's in this place where he's like, this doesn't make sense. If you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? I pointed people to you. I did what I was supposed to do. How did I end up in prison? Shouldn't it be the other guys? This doesn't make sense. 
Jesus didn't fit the expectations. So even though Jesus was going around announcing the kingdom of heaven had come, and although he had showed that the kingdom had come through these various miracles, the results were mixed. Some heard, but were bored. Some were confused. Some saw it, didn't think too much of it. A few did hear it and followed. A few heard and called on his name, and they were healed. But it didn't make sense to people. There wasn't a very large following for Jesus. There was a small gathering of followers, maybe, maybe 100 people at the time. How is that supposed to be the kingdom of God? How is that supposed to be this promised time that Israel had been waiting for? This is the glorious kingdom of heaven coming down on earth. This misfit group of fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, former sex workers, they're supposed to represent the reign of God on earth? doesn't make sense. See, our temptation is the same as those people in the first century. That small means weakness. That small means a few people are behind it, and a few people behind it means that it must not be a move of God. Large means blessing. Small means the absence of God's blessing. That's the logic at work. And Jesus says it's false. This small movement you see is the kingdom of God among you. Don't miss it. Don't dismiss it. Jesus compares the kingdom to this mustard seed. It's so small, but it's full of this life-giving power. He compares it to leaven because these small things are hard to see. It's hard to see. It's hard to recognize it. Think about our, uh, uh, you know, before the service starts, in the greeting time, and then after the service, those of us who are adults and we're standing up and we're interacting with one another, sometimes there's these little people that dart around you and behind you, all around you, and you don't always see them, so you almost bump into them. Sometimes they run into you. They're small, and we can't always see them. These small things can be easy to miss. It's easy to go unnoticed and just miss what's going on. These unseen and hidden things will eventually develop into visible fruit, though, Jesus says. Tangible effects. So don't despise the smallness of how my kingdom starts. Trust in the power of my kingdom. And so we come to this question What is Jesus inviting us to do through these parables? Jesus is inviting us to put our confidence in telling and living Jesus' little gospel. To put our confidence in telling and living Jesus' little gospel. What is his gospel? He announces that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yes, it is little, but it is mighty to save. Yes, it's tiny, but it is teeming with the power of God. You and I are tempted to look around at our city, our country, our world, and see these other powers at work. We observe these dominant ideas about life, meaning, values, and conclude there's no chance that Jesus' kingdom will advance in the lives of my neighbors, my coworkers, my friends my parents, my kids, my roommates. There's no way it will grow or permeate our world. 
That's our temptation. And Jesus is saying, put your confidence. Put your confidence in telling and living my little gospel. Trust me. Because it has and it will. It has and it will. It will grow. It will permeate the world. Look at what, where we're at now and think about where Jesus begins here. Jesus, what, what he starts with and where we are 2,000 years later. His mission is like this mustard seed and his death and resurrection released this new power into the world, a new life. And it's this resurrection life that has been transforming fearful followers of Jesus who deny that they know him or have anything to do with him because they're afraid of losing their life to refusing to ever deny that they are with him and know him and love him, even if it costs them their life. Fearful disciples are transformed into these courageous disciples. Impulsive and selfish disciples become self-controlled and, and loving, sacrificial apprentices of Jesus. We don't have to be ashamed of the smallness of Jesus, of his message or his way. It seems upside down to us. But Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's the power to save. It's the power to transform, to heal hearts, to forgive, to restore relationship. It's the power to choose building your life on serving others rather than being served. Building your life on giving rather than taking. And it's this message of the kingdom that as people heard and received and embraced it, started to experience this transformation within them. And this is why the first institution for the blind was founded by a follower of Jesus on the banks of the Euphrates River. It was a monk named uh, Thalassius. The first public hospital was founded by a Christian woman named Fabiola in 394 A.D., she personally financed the construction of it in Rome. Now, there were other types of hospitals that previously existed, but they were not public. They were for specific groups of people, like soldiers or slaves or people with specific illnesses. But this was a public civilian hospital. Fabiola even personally tended to the wounded and diseased, and she used her country villa as a transitionary home for hospital patients that had been released but they needed shelter and rest. In the 1780s, there was this small group of Christian friends and families that formed, and many of them hailed from this area called Clapham in England, and they eventually got this name, the Clapham sect. Their most famous member was this guy named William Wilberforce. They worked together for decades, this network of friends and families, for decades to bring about reform in the penal system, to see a moral transformation of their society, to liberate slaves, and to even end slavery altogether. They did this in British Parliament and in their nation, founding several different societies. And after decades, their efforts saw the end of the slave trade in the British Empire in 1807, the emancipation of British slaves in 1883 with the Slavery Abolition Act, 
and they contributed to the rise of what became as, uh, known as Victorian uh, morals through their writings and their influence and example in parliament and society. Their impact was so significant in that time that one historian writes that the ethos of the Clapham sect became the spirit of the age. They were not this large group. They were not the mighty. But over decades, they worked together on these causes. Why? Why would they do that? Slavery was entrenched. There was like an economic benefit for England. And they were working against that. It's because when you encounter the king of heaven, you change. Your heart begins to be moved by compassion and justice for the things that move him. You begin to see your gifts, your talents, your resources as things that you have to contribute to the good of others, even if it takes years, decades. So that the ethos of the living God becomes the ethos of a community of Jesus followers. And it starts small and unnoticeable, seemingly insignificant and impossible. But over time, what was once hidden becomes seen. And that little mustard seed grows to provide shade and shelter for others. That little bit of yeast that mixes into the flour to permeate the whole thing provides for many. That's the kingdom, Jesus says. Don't dismiss the smallness of my kingdom. Put your confidence in living and telling Jesus' little gospel. Because when you do, you tap into the power and love of the living God. And it might not show up right away. But when you look at the life of Jesus and you look at where we are today, you see a transformation that has happened. You see people who took him at his word, took him seriously, and said, I'm going to actually live my life towards his kingdom purposes. I'm going to build my life on what he teaches us, what he shows me, even if it costs me, even if it seems outlandish. So, Father in heaven, we come before you. And we confess that there are so many different moments where we look out at the world, we look out at our city, and we see our own smallness. We even hear your message and it feels so insignificant. And there are moments where it doesn't even move us because we see these other powers, they seem so mighty and strong. But in this moment, Lord, we want to turn and hear your words. And not just hear them, but embrace them as our own. That your kingdom starts off small, but it has the power to bring life, to heal, to restore, to provide shade and shelter for others. That your kingdom can care for others and introduce others through your people. You can actually use us to introduce others to your kind of care, your love, your grace, your truth. And so, Lord, we ask that in the different uh, spheres of influence you have given us, in our families, in our workplaces, in our friends, you would enable us not to despise the smallness, but to embrace it and to entrust and put our confidence in your gospel, that your kingdom really has come, that it really is at work. 
and that you invite us to dwell in that truth and to operate out of that place, not out of scarcity or smallness, but of trust and confidence in what you are doing in our world. We pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen.